pito uno, pito dos, pito tres, pito cuatro, pito uno, pito dos, pito tres, pito cuatro, chichi uno, chichi dos, chichi tres, chichi cuatro. You ever find anything good in the garbage? Uh, I'm having trouble thinking so. I think I found pornography in the garbage before. I found this. Oh. It's, it's a it's a magazine. Well, it's a news. It's, it's a source of news. Okay. Well, it's, explain it to the audience. It's called Criminal Politics. It's the magazine of conspiracy politics. Oh. This is the May 31st, 1996 issue. I found this in a pile of trash at work. <laughs> the owner buys vehicles sometimes and he'll uh, he'll let you rifle through the trash in them, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> I think it's kind of wild that like he bought a vehicle that had a conspiracy magazine from 1996 in it. And it's in, aside from the cover being kind of grody, it's in pretty good shape. Um, but I've learned a lot. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Did you know, did you know that Clinton is blocking the prosecution of pedophiles? Oh, no. And that Reno refuses to join a news conference and a child porn bust. Oh. Yeah, uh, I've mostly just been reading the headlines. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, it's really a, uh, everything old's new though, you know? They, I didn't realize that they'd been calling him a pedophile for so long. I mean, like he is pretty sure, like he, he hung out with them, right? Epstein and all that, but, uh. He did, but. A lot of people did. A lot of people. I'm not did. saying that that doesn't mean that all of those people aren't. <laughs> I think he. There's a good chance he is. I don't think that this is related to that, though. Right. This just seems to be uh, the mail service ran some kind of child porn ring sting and busted a bunch of people. Oh, okay. And Clinton yeah. decided not to, I guess, address them. I guess. I mean. I don't know. But uh, official policy is supportive of pedophilia. With an exclamation point is the uh, subheader on that one. <laughs> what else do we got? Well, Clinton's Supreme Court court appointments move America toward homosexuality. <laughs> oh no! I mean, that actually turned out to be true. They did. They made it legal. We got uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, S- Stephen Breyer. Oh yeah. Yep. They made America gayer, and uh, we appreciate that. Yeah. Oh, here's one that's good for us. Who pays for the foul culture presented to us as art? Uh, Is it the taxpayers? Is that what they're getting at? Yes. Why? Well, <laughs> this all sounds like it was written by like a 68-year-old. Why must commercials routinely use rudeness? <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, consider a comparison of some of the older commercials with today's, where innocence is never a factor. Uh, I guess in 96, the commercials were getting too horny. Man, they had rude. no idea what was coming in the next few years. No, they... This guy, 
idiot, kind of. I don't know. It's pretty interesting. Um, some of it's probably true. The gay stuff was. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't bad, but it was true. Oh, here's one. I told you what's old is new. Chinese government officials caught red-handed in act of war against U.S. Oh. You heard about this balloon that's flying around? I, I have heard about the balloon. It's all in here, man. <laughs> the more I read, I think we're getting... I think I'm on, I think it's on to something. Uh, well, hold on. Let's see. Oh, the role of Jewish Hollywood. Oh, boy. I don't know. I might have to... I'm going to take it with a, a grain of salt. Yeah, probably more than a grain. Yeah. But uh, that's what I found in the trash this week. Well, conspiracies from 1996 are crazy. Much like sex is crazy. Oh, yeah? Sorry. Uh, uh, <laughs> you're, you went back to reading. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm really, like, I'm kind of invested. <laughs> well, while Jeremy reads, I'll go ahead and uh, tell our listeners... T- uh, welcome to the Raincoat Report. This is Boss here with Jeremy. I want this it's, um, a child, not a choice, like long sleeve shirt. <laughs> the way they made it, it looks like if you're familiar with any like 80s hardcore albums, usually there's like a black and white shot and then there's like text around it and kind of like a stencil. Okay. Yeah. And they, they've done that with this and uh, it's pretty slick. <laughs> That's one of the things about the pro-life people is that they'll they'll sell you anything and they just use all that money for evil. Right. They're slick about it. I accidentally bought that little uh, fetus from them one time at the fair. Because so I was like, I want this little fetus. <laughs> um, what else do we... Oh, there's one other thing in here I think I wanted to... The World Jewish Congress. No, that's not it. Uh, cleanse your soul on your very own Clinton doormat. <laughs> I, and you just, uh, yeah, it's got an image of Clinton saying, I feel your pain. And you just wipe your feet. $20. Yeah. I think that there are quite a few, uh, very reasonable reasons to, uh, criticize, uh, Clinton. I have a feeling that they're coming from a very different place than I would be. Yeah. And you know who else is coming from a different place? The Raincoat Report, as we bring you Franco February. Yes, uh, despite us being about a week too late on this, uh, we are back here to discuss uh, an annual tradition of ours, that being Franco February. Yeah. And what better way to start Franco February than turning the Franco knob up to 11 and talking about his 1981 release, Sex is Crazy. El Sexo is Loco, right? Yes. Is it El Sexo? That doesn't sound right. El Sexo Esta Loca. Oh, okay. It is uh, just, esta Loco. It is just sex. El Sexo Esta Loco. El Sexo Esta Loco. Yeah. It's pretty straightforward. It is straightforward. It also sounds like me trying to like make up something Spanish. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this case, you would be correct. Got to get it right eventually. I took enough French to know that a lot of the languages, they put the put the little uh, the thing first. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it's called anymore. 
but the thing the thing is uh thing is crazy yes well <laughs> in in the case of sex is crazy we're talking about an interesting period in Franco's career, as really most periods of Franco's career are. Um, this is in between the era where he was making films for Erwin C. Dietrich, which I've, which we've discussed before on this show, and uh, before the era where he made a slate of films for Golden Films, which we've covered some of those on the f- show as well. This was a time where he was kind of going from producer to producer, Uh, getting funding from multiple sources. Um, This was shot sometime in 1980 or 1981. Uh, The registration certificate for it is 1981, but uh, Stephen Thrower notes that he found a newspaper article where a local film critic mentioned that Jess was in town shooting a film called Sexo Loco in early 1980. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, He mentions that that might have been when he was shooting it. It also could have been that he started shooting it then and then shot like a couple days and then went back to it later or scrapped what he shot and went back to it. But adjectives, adjectives. Okay. (laughs) Uh, anyhow, um, as as always, I've kind of dug into the supporting material of this film. You kind of uh, have. I think you kind of have to with this one. Otherwise, you're gonna be you're gonna be out on a limb. Yeah. So, uh, you know, referencing Flowers of Perversion, uh-huh. uh, Stephen Thrower's second book on Jess Franco, and also uh, the Severin Blu-ray release has a. 50-minute-long interview with uh, Stephen Thrower about this film. I caught a bit in the end of that. He, uh, very illuminating. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, those things are very helpful in trying to piece together this film. Thrower kind of notes that this may have very well been inspired by the works of Godard. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically in... May of 1980, which would be after this film began production, if that newspaper article is accurate, um, Godard released a film called Sauve Capu, or Slow Motion, or Every Man for Himself, depending on what region it was in. Mm-hmm. But it was his first film in almost a decade, uh, his first narrative feature film. And it was really experimental. And uh, this film is certainly experimental in its own way. Yeah. Um, Thrower goes on to talk about how Jess had this very hostile feeling towards pretension in cinema. And there were a few filmmakers who made experimental films that he did have a lot of respect for. uh, But a lot of times he kind of mocked artistic pretensions in filmmaking. But... Godard was one of the few that he had a whole lot of respect for. He also really liked uh, Bunuel and uh, probably several other filmmakers as well, but those were two that just came to mind. But in particular with Godard, uh, the film that he released in 1980 was kind of a deconstruction of filmmaking, Mm -hmm. and 
kind of was designed to be a bit antagonistic to the audience looking for a narrative film. Mm, like uh, like recent uh, selection, Concrete Cock, maybe. Uh, perhaps in some ways, so yeah. That one's kind of tearing the whole thing apart in a, in a way that uh, I think it has more of a narrative than the, than uh, probably that Godard film and probably definitely this, if yeah. they're similar in any way. Yeah, C- Concrete Cock, I think, is more of a straightforward parody. That's fair. In the sense that, yeah, it is kind of taking shots at filmmaking, but Godard's film was actively kind of... Uh, deconstructing it in real time in the sense that uh, things would like slow down. They'd be going at like one frame a second while the audio continued or the audio would continue from one scene as another scene began. Jess's approach wasn't exactly like what Godard did. Right. But since he was such a fan of Godard, it's quite possible that he had seen that film and taken some inspiration as far as the direction of it is concerned. Or perhaps, just because he followed Godard's career, he hadn't yet seen the film, but kind of had been following his route through things. Yeah. But Sex is Crazy in general is not really like Jess's films before, and for the most part, those afterwards. Uh, There is one later film that uh, we'll talk about later this month that shares a bit of DNA with this, but... I would say this film does have one very uh, Frank- Franconian element. Yeah. The uh, the stage show. Yes, there is... Uh... You can't stop this man. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, as, as we discussed off-air earlier, trying to get uh, Jess Franco to not put a stage show in his film is like trying to get a dolphin to walk on dry land. Yeah. And... Uh... He definitely goes for it here, although this film has a bit of a narrative loop, and we'll we'll get to that, but it kind of uh, reminds me of the beginning and end of Lynch's Lost Highway, in the not, sense that... I haven't seen Lost Highway. Things kind of loop around from the beginning okay. to the end. That's fair. I saw, um, I saw Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive is a lot like Lost Highway. I okay. think Mulholland Drive is the superior take on the ideas of lost highway all right but lost highway is worth a watch in its own right i'm gonna watch them all eventually even inland empire i'm gonna find three hours yeah i haven't watched that one yet watch it together watch that in jurassic park and really (laughs) explore the mind of laura dern have you seen uh blue velvet no not no i've not seen very many lynch films i'll say uh Probably told the story before, but instead of having field day one year because we'd been bad in sixth grade, our teacher made us watch The Elephant Man. Okay, okay. <laughs> I was about to say, what What did they show you in school? <laughs> okay, yeah. I haven't actually watched Elephant Man, but I imagine it's probably his most straightforward it's film. It's straightforward, but it's, a very, uh, it's very unnerving to see as a sixth grader. I'd imagine. I don't think that David Lynch could make a film that isn't unnerving, in a way. He made one for Disney that I have not seen. Oh, The Straight Story. Yeah. I haven't seen that. It's probably got kind of... It's probably got some background unnervingness, though. Yeah. I have a feeling. There's just, like, yeah. You get, like, that little, like, thing that checks for, like, radiation that's always just a little bit in the background of his films. Yeah, the the Geiger counter of weirdness. Yeah. Laura Dern. (laughs) Yeah. Put it near her, and it just goes crazy. 
<laughs> well, regardless of his intention, uh, Jess creates a film here that's really hard to piece together narratively, and this is going to be my greatest challenge as a podcaster you think so? in trying to uh, make sense of the narrative of a film. Okay. Uh, I there's I can't think of anything that we've covered. No, there's nothing that would have been anywhere close to this. Even the other weird Franco films. Yeah, even just like stuff that's seemingly like like sex in the comics. Yeah, yeah. Even stuff like that, I think, is easier to relate. Yeah, because uh, there, there's the plot is. Oh, the plot of each of the segments is decipherable. Well, yeah. It's just a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's just one of those things where I just think, you know, buckle up. Yeah. So um, I'll get a little more into kind of some of the ideas of the film as we talk about it. And certainly once we finished, uh, I'll kind of loop back around and talk a little bit more before we do the classic... Uh, the raincoat review. E he 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 he. The raincoat review. Well, I thought this film was uh, <laughs> hey, truly I... bizarre. Oh wait, <laughs> sorry. I was reading my magazine. I thought we were done. <laughs> All right. So we're gonna take a quick break, and then we'll be back. Um, I'll go ahead and say. Yeah, I'll I'll be back. I'll, I'll go ahead and I'm say I'll cut. be back. All Just right. like um, Arnold. Yeah, uh, I'll be back. Say it like Arnold. I'll be back. It's terrible. I'm going to kill you. Ah! We're back on the Raincoat Report to talk sex is crazy. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, let's pop it off. I hit the pop button, but it didn't work. Let's go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and say that when we're working through this film, one of the uh, key qualities uh, for the better or for the worse of the film is that um, there's a bit of a film within a film, but even the film within a film has a bunch of fourth wall breaking, and we have characters that are referred to by three different names, mm -hmm. or at least actors who are referred to by three different names that may or may not be be playing different characters at various times. Um, the entire film is certainly designed to be disorienting and unnerving. Uh, and we get a lot of that coming out of the gate. So the film opens with, uh, first our Spanish film S certificate, uh, which is the just shy of hardcore rating, not quite an X, but, uh, almost there yeah. designed for adult audiences. Nonetheless, 
And then we open with a text crawl. That text crawl says, Any similarities between the events and characters of this film and real life are merely coincidental. Actually, such coincidence would leave us perplexed, as real life, unfortunately, is less maddening and stimulating. Our authors wish to reflect, without pretension, the world of erotic dreams, of the horny imaginations of two couples on a more or less pornographic shoot. So, we get kind of a first peek at a few things. Uh, Firstly, as I mentioned in our opening, just had a thing against the pretentiousness in in, uh, filmmaking and the uh, idea of this being a reflection on sexuality without pretension is uh, given to us up front. And secondly, at the very end of that message, it mentions that this is uh, the world of erotic dreams and of the horny imaginations of two couples on a more or less pornographic shoot. And I think that's our tip-off, that we're dealing with a film within a film here, uh-huh. as we are constantly reminded of throughout. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as that happens throughout the film. Yes, yes. So we open on a close-up of a disco ball with light shining on it, uh, as I think several Jess Franco films do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and indeed, much like many Jess Franco films, this opens on an erotic performance, although we're not quite clear of that immediately. What we do get is uh, a droning voiceover that uh, is chanted at first by one person and then by multiple people. Dick one, dick two, dick three, dick four. We see silver men marching along. A bunch of naked men painted silver. Yes, and though we haven't covered it on the show, this is... uh reminiscent of the Frankenstein creature in the erotic rites of Frankenstein. It is indeed. Uh, uh, a silver Frankenstein appears in that film. Yes. Uh, and we also see a bunch of silver-painted women as well, as the voice chants out, Pussy 1, Pussy 2, Pussy 3, Pussy 4. We see the uh, announcing silver woman on screen, explaining that an earthling woman has been captured and can be impregnated with children for planet Argolios. Yeah. The voice tells us that Argolios's pussy cannot be impregnated. It must be the Earthlings that are. It seems like a bad... It doesn't seem good. It seems like a poor biological design. Yeah. That would cause a species to die out. But uh, I guess they've they've made it long enough that now they can capture people to impregnate. And as we can see, they are very efficient once they start impregnating. Yeah, no, that's not the problem. But I don't think they would have survived long enough to develop uh, space flight. It's possible uh, that perhaps they were able to impregnate at one point, and they slowly evolved into not being able to once they got to the point where they were impregnating other species. Yeah, they evolved. Their pussies got all dried up and <laughs> just like sealed off, sealed up. Their wombs rotted. <laughs> so this sort of weird chanting uh, announcement continues as we see the camera point at silver vaginas and breasts. Uh, and we see the earthling being carried. 
although it's a while until we get a good look at her. And indeed, this is uh, Lena Romay as our Earthling, who uh, plays the role of either Marfia or Marcia, uh, depending on uh, what source you consult. The subtitles, I believe, call her Marfia. Yeah, uh, Marfia. Uh, although she is referred to as other names later this on, is, as many characters are. This is my beautiful wife, Marfia. <laughs> I heard someone's name the other day was Narcy. Narcy? Narcy. That's uh, quite it's not, something. It's not great. The voice says, Dick's ready in firing position from fuck to delivery in nine seconds. Yes. We see Marfia laid down by some silver men who then run train nine seconds at a time on her. They do, and her stomach does a very... Uh, I assume this is, this is no special effect, so this is just Gina uh, Romay doing some kind of strange, like... Pushing her stomach, stomach up and out. Down. Yeah, like yeah. distending her stomach in a way that's very unpleasant to look at. So these people get on top of her and mime having sex with her. Mm-hmm. And within nine seconds, she puffs out her stomach and then pushes it back down. Uh, we don't see the birth of any children, but we do hear baby cries. Yeah, and then people scream, Nino! Yes. And you hear crying. Um, it's pretty good. They can deliver up to 600 babies an hour is what, uh, that's what the IMDB synopsis says. I don't know if that number is promised in the film. It is not exactly promised, although, uh, you know, and at nine seconds, they wouldn't have, uh, 600 in an hour. However, they they do at one point note, look, a seven seconder. Oh. So... Nine isn't necessarily the minimum. Right. No, yeah. Like, uh, it's all about timing. Yeah. Just how many you can get out an hour, really. One of the announcer ladies says, that one is going too far, watching another guy fuck the earthling. See, like, for like 15 seconds? Perhaps. But then the lights go out, and then we cut to an audience clapping, and it's here that we realize this is another Jess Franco stage show. Yeah, and we're, um... Greeted by Monster Men. Yes, uh, a classy crowd wearing rubber masks. Yeah. Uh, these vary in design from a wolf man to a guy with an eye patch to more abstract manimals. Yeah, there's a lot of manimals going on. There's a gorilla man, um, iguana lady, probably, uh, a lemur. Yeah. <laughs> So now we cut backstage where we find Spencer, played by Antonio Mayans, a Jess Franco veteran. Yeah. Uh, I feel like every movie we watch this month is either going to have Lena Romay or Antonio Mayans. Uh, that may be the case. Yeah. We see that Spencer is flirting with Dorothy, played by Lynn Anderson, a.k.a. Uh, Lynn Anderson. <laughs> Yeah, the credits on the screen say Lynn Anderson. We learn here that they're both sex performers, and uh, they're chatting about another couple. Uh, Marfia, who is Lena Romay's character, is upset uh, because she got jealous when her husband Flanagan, who is played by Tony Skios, a.k.a. Antonio Ribalo, I believe, is his his uh, actual name. His actual name's better than his, uh, his nom de film. 
Right. Well, they they were doing a lot of uh, anglicizing names. Yeah, for sure. Because, uh, you know, Antonio Mayans was like Robert Foster a lot. Yeah, back in the day, uh, before the movies could get released in the U.S., they had to run the credits past the people at Ellis Island. And they were like, <laughs> <laughs> and they would just change them. <laughs> He's like, uh, Antonio Robaldo. No, you're, you're Bob Foster. <laughs> All right. Take your bag and go. But anyway, we learned that uh, Marfia is jealous of her husband, Flanagan, who had sex with Dorothy as part of a show they were doing. So we have two couples here, just to establish this and try to formalize this. Flanagan and Marfia are a couple, Mm -hmm. and Dorothy and Spencer are a couple. And they're played by the same people? Uh, no. Okay. Marfia is Lena Romay, and Flanagan is Tony Skios. Uh, Spencer is Antonio Mayans, and Dorothy is Lynn Anderson. Okay. So then we cut to Marfia talking to Flanagan, the couple that we were just talking about, and Marfia's apparently jealous. But this is when we start to see the interesting nature of this film as throughout this entire scene we see jess franco and a guy with a camera in the mirror yeah marfia is upset with flanagan because he was so aroused while working with dorothy flanagan assures her that she shouldn't be jealous and uh, marfia and flanagan make out marfia was pretty upset when she was talking to him and after they start making out jess stops them and tells them to uh, do another take. But nicer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I noted here that this becomes the most unrealistic scene in the film because Jess asked for a second take. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the second scene is more or less the same dialogue, but delivered in a more playful manner. Yeah. Um, they make out for a bit. And then we cut away. We're then introduced to Rosalina by the narrator. The narrator explains that Rosalina has nothing to do with the movie, but she's the producer's girlfriend, so they gave her a nice role. Yeah, you know, just, uh... Wow, look at those tits. Indeed, so she's laying naked in bed, and she's pretty attractive, so I'm not complaining. No, yeah, it's, uh... And this recurs several times throughout the film. It does, and eventually she actually does have a role in the film, but we'll get to that. No, yeah, it's, um... It's a nice little thing. I actually enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Um experimental films can be uh difficult to watch sometimes yeah um as a they require they require a lot out of an audience right they make me think i'm scrunching my brow the whole time (laughs) it's nice to just have it all laid out you know if nothing else at least this experimental film has a lot of delightful visuals yes so then we get some establishing shots of a hotel and cut inside to spencer and dorothy Dorothy's cackling about people she hates as Spencer puts on her stockings. Spencer notes that he was just some employee in Minnesota before Dorothy came along. She says if he ever wants his autonomy back, well, she doesn't want to hear it. He professes, though, that he can't live without her, and he can't go back to Minnesota. No, absolutely not. Meanwhile, Flanagan is watching Marfia P. sitting on the toilet... She does not wipe when she gets up. No, that's the European style. (laughs) (laughs) Flanagan ultimately offers Marfia a glass of wine. 
And after she takes a drink, we watch her writhe on the bed. In fact, yeah, it was Flanagan who served her poisonous wine. Yeah, you do see him dump like an entire vial of white powder and then immediately <laughs> give it to her. That right. stuff would just be floating on the top still. Yeah. In fact, I do believe we see it just sitting yeah. there and she just <laughs> drinks it. It's at this point that Flanagan turns to the camera and says, that should knock her out for a few hours. He holds her breast to check her responsiveness. And then he leaves and Marfi immediately gets up grabs her gun, and gives chase. Mm -hmm. So, this is not only an indication of the fourth wall breaking of the film itself, but actually, we have the fourth wall breaking of the film in that we saw Jess Franco directing the characters, Mm -hmm. but we also see that in the film within a film, the characters are breaking the fourth wall by talking to the camera. I don't know. Head hurts. I want to go back to the simple world of pedophile conspiracies. (laughs) We check on Rosalina, who is now sexily smoking in bed. I'm sorry, the ice is melting and it's clinking. (laughs) Marfia flags down a taxi and the taxi follows another car with uh, Flanagan and Dorothy. They make their way into a carnival or amusement park. Flanagan flails his arms as he boats a as he boards a boat. Yeah, it's just like a big it's a big boat. Inside at a table, we have Flanagan, Spencer, Dorothy, and the director himself, Jess Franco. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're playing cards. I have no idea how this game works that they're playing. It's like go it's like go fish. But uh or they Uno. seem Yeah, something like that. But uh, they seem to hear the footsteps of Marfia as she's approaching. She kind of draws her gun from her stocking. They stare towards the curtain as she approaches. Sorry, and, I had to. He said gun. Oh. <laughs> and uh, they moan as they're waiting for her to appear. Marfia bursts through the curtain and tells them to stop, pointing her gun at them. Flanagan notes he has two of a kind, but Marfia says he lost. She says. He said he was getting a magazine, and Flanagan produces a magazine. Yes, he does. have. He did get the magazine, so... Marfia tells him that this was a lie anyway, and he's betraying her, noting that she gave her life to him. Marfia then tells Spencer to come with her, or she'll kill herself. So, in this scene, you have Jess Franco, the director of the film, and the director of the film within a film... Is he himself in the scene? Are these his actors at this point, or are these his characters? That's a good question I don't have an answer to. Yeah. It's I, almost like I kind of feel like Marfia is coming in and he's she's catching them, but part of her catching them is they weren't ready for the next scene in the film to happen, so the director's just sitting there playing cards with them. Yeah. It's important to note, that he's not really addressed by anybody at any point in this scene. No. Marfia doesn't acknowledge that he's there. Yeah, he And he just making, disappears afterwards. Yeah, he keeps making, like, snide comments that no one, like, really addresses. Right? Yeah. It's interesting. hmm It certainly is. Marfia tells Flanagan to come with her, or she's gonna kill him. But Flanagan again notes that he has two of a kind. So, then, she switches to threatening to kill herself. <laughs> 
The table then starts to talk about how the Argentinians are coming. Okay. So she calls out to Flanagan to love her, but the people at the table keep muttering to one another and kind of ignoring her. And it's at this point that a brand new couple appear, the Argentinians. Yeah, uh, a male and female couple, They just kind of from Argentina. Right? They just kind of dance their way onto screen, mm-hmm. and then they grab Marfia and tie her to a chair. The uh, Argentinian woman asks what uh, Marfia was doing for Buster last night. Uh, Marfia has no idea what they're talking about, and of course I don't either. They ask about the stash. Uh, Marfia gets slapped in response to this, and then Spencer tells the couple to go away, and he starts to circle Marfia himself. Marfia is thankful for this at first, but panics as he starts to very quickly run around her in circles. He asks about submarines and her meeting with a minister in a private room, but then Spencer slaps her. She notes some things can't be said in public, and Spencer agrees to meet her at seven, and they smile. But then Spencer calls the Argentinians back over, and they menace her with a fork and a knife. Yes. And uh, by a knife, I mean a butter knife. Yeah, it's not a a sharp one. Uh... They kind of imply that she's getting stabbed in a vagina with a fork, and then we kind of see it more or less in very non-threatening manner. She is, at best, combing her pubic hair with that fork. Right? (laughs) Uh, They minister for a bit as Dorothy and Flanagan watch all horny, and and Spencer keeps demanding that they poke her. Marfia insists she knows nothing, and after a while, Flanagan calls out that that's enough. And that he told them that they could trust Marfia. The Argentinians are told to let Marfia go and are dismissed. When we cut to the next shot, we see a makeup woman fixing Marfia's uh, makeup at the start of the shot. We hear Jess yelling out for her to move and get out of frame. Flanagan's talking about Marfia knowing the secret plans. And then Flanagan starts to finger Marfia to excited responses. But then Flanagan pulls out something from her vagina it's like a, a mic- capsule you know like a capsule containing like a microfilm or something yes uh it's a capsule that has the secret plans in one form or another yeah or at least what he believes to be they're in there and they've been in there for god knows how long uh he says for two months it doesn't seem i don't know so spencer apologizes for not trusting her apparently she was holding on to the plans for two months and therefore she can be trusted uh, so the guys untie her. Then we cut to a daytime shot as a car is driving down the road with Flanagan and Marfia. So this is one of the bizarre, surreal scenes in the film where they're having a bizarre conversation in broken, high-pitched English mm-hmm. uh, using cartoony voices, perhaps quoting some surreal poem or something. But there's... Ultimately, their conversation is complete nonsense. It kind of sounds like maybe it's being recorded backwards, too. There's Perhaps. Some, there's something to it. Uh, they're all like the uh, the small man, more or less. Oh, in Twin Peaks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. is very, like, Lynchian, and even more than that, like, like the, uh, the Simpsons parody of Twin Peaks, when, uh, okay. yeah. <laughs> well, and... 
Stephen Thrower kind of talks about this scene in another scene later and posits that perhaps this is some sort of commentary on Jess's work in adult films because they were getting to a point where he kind of felt like the people going to see his films weren't interested in the dialogue or anything else. They just wanted to see Lena and the other women naked and Mm -hmm. that's all that was important. So the dialogue itself might not be important to a lot of scenes. To be fair, he he does sort of foster that response. In some ways, yes. <laughs> I mean, you could say that Jess doesn't put a lot of thought into the dialogue in some things, and, and Thrower, in talking about this film, mentions that in a lot of Jess's films, some of the dialogue is at best functional. Um, right. I would say that that's not true of all of his films. No, no. Or all of his dialogue. But no. there are certainly a lot of films where I would say that that's the case. Yeah, like, it's not like he was just making these films and people started showing up to see Lena naked and ignoring right. his stories. He was making these films with Lena naked and doing them on, like, micro budgets. Right, right. Um, And, you know, it just kind of... It's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. But I would also say that there's probably some amount of Jess feeling like he put a lot of effort into at least some of his films. Yeah, definitely. And that that effort wasn't uh, met with like a response or acknowledgement uh, versus the films that he put perhaps a lot less effort into. Sure. But... What happens here is, as they're talking to each other in the most bizarre manner possible, Marfia rubs Flanagan's crotch and finally climbs onto his lap to ride him in sitting reverse cowgirl as they barrel down the road at a brisk two miles per hour. Yeah. Uh, After a bit, we then cut to Marfia naked in bed as we hear them moaning more in the background. Then we see Spencer is naked in bed next to her. Marfia reaches over and tries to tickle his dick, but he seems annoyed and rolls away. So Marfia gets up and looks out the window to the beach below in a classic Jess Franco scenery shot. Yeah. After a bit, we see Marfia naked out on some rocks overlooking the sea. We get a long, wide shot as then we as we then see Spencer approach her. Then we watch as they make out and sink down to the ground. We cut to Dorothy and Flanagan, who Dorothy now calls Martinez, watching Spencer and Marfie on the beach. They start to grind and get excited and then lay on a pool chair to play with each other. We then see another couple, the couple who were playing the Argentinians, watching from a balcony. They're excited seeing Dorothy and Flanagan fucking outside. And so they start to get busy on the couch. The narrator at this point introduces us again to Rosalinda. Yes. uh, Who he notes is appearing in her first scene as an actress. A naked man is in the bed next to hers, looking at a paper. She calls over to him, Panchito she calls him, uh, that the neighbors are fucking and so she gets on top of him. So we cut between the couples making out and uh, making softcore love for a bit. Marfie and Spencer make their way back to the hotel room for their business, and then we see Dorothy and Flanagan look into the open sliding door. They're invited to sit down and join them. 
It's at this point, as they're talking, that there's some confusion on who was supposed to say which line, prompting Marfia to ask Jess Franco, who is at first off screen and then comes on screen, (laughs) who was supposed to say the line. Jess walks on screen and tells Dorothy, who he refers to as Eusebia, that she was supposed to give a look and Marfia was supposed to say the line. The couples introduce themselves, and the visiting couple are invited into bed as Marfia and Spencer, who is now referred to as Gutierrez, roll and make love. We cut to the four in a circle of sucking and fucking in bed. Stephen Thrower kind of noted that this scene is kind of absurd in its own way because there's a lot of them obviously not making love, but just no, kind of yeah. kind of being naked and tangled in one another in <laughs> shots that uh, even Jess would have thrown away in most films. Flanagan confesses that he's never had sex this good uh, as he has with the three of them. So they moan and roll for a bit. And then we cut to Marfia and Flanagan making out alongside Spencer and Dorothy. Then we cut away and back to the couples now bottomless, seemingly having sex against the wall, though this would be impossible in the position and angle that they're in. You don't know that. We then cut to the four of them on a couch, telling a guy that the four of them want to get married to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they formed um, a polycule. Yeah. Yeah. They're all in love. We then cut to the four of them getting married. Or at least the men are getting married to the women. Yeah. No, it's... Uh... They're okay with uh, polygamy, but they're yeah. not okay with gay polygamy. No, I understand. I don't know if gay polygamy has a name. Or, they're. I mean, just gay marriage in general. Yeah, they're not... I guess if they were okay with gay marriage and polygamy, the guys could get married. Because there's only one guy marrying one guy. Or one girl marrying one girl. Yeah, the girls don't get married either. Right. No. It's sad. It is sad. But we then cut to Rosalina caressing herself in bed again. Then we cut to the foursome eating ice cream together and feeding each other and being flirtatious and playing footsie. We cut to them in two sets of 69s followed by some doggy banging with some real exaggerated reactions. Uh, in discussing the sex scenes in this film, Stephen Thrower talked about how Jess might have been at a point where he was getting a bit uh, bored filming sex scenes, although he obviously got a second wind out of this. But yeah, yeah. in this film, some of the sex is played up for uh, humor, and I think this is one of those scenes mm-hmm. as they're being very over-the-top with their reactions to the sex that they're having. We see the ladies... Riding cowgirl, discussing dresses they may buy as they're riding cocks. Finally, we see them all in bed reading comic books and kissing each other goodnight. Yeah. We cut to Spencer complaining to Flanagan about how bored he is going to bed with the same couple every night. Flanagan is also bored, and just as they acknowledge this, a lady in a bikini knocks on the glass door and the men take off after her. Marfia sees this, walking in just as they're taking off, and she breaks down in tears. So we cut to Marfia looking at herself in the mirror, with Jess and crew plainly invisible. Dorothy asks what's wrong, and Marfia says her husbands are cheating on her. Oh no. Dorothy notes, well that means that they're cheating on me too! 
And so Dorothy suggests they should find men to play with themselves. We then cut to the foursome having just finished watching an episode of something they watched on a videotape. Okay. They're looking at a screen of static, and uh, they have to explain to Marfia what videotape is. This is the early days of video, after all. That is true. 1980. And Marfia's too busy fucking everybody to be up on the latest cool technology at home. That's understandable. She's got a busy life. Marfia and Dorothy talk about being horny after Dorothy notes that Marfia dresses like a whore. And this delights Marfia, and she goes on for a while about how proud she is to be a whore or flirtatious. And Flanagan and Spencer are exchanging disapproving glances, and they're kind of making fun of Marfia as they ask uh, her more questions. But Marfia isn't really picking up on it as she talks about seducing men and gives Dorothy some advice uh, at Spencer's request to make her sexy. Marfia notes that Dorothy is beautiful, but she dresses like a grandma. Mm -hmm. So Marfia offers to give Dorothy a makeover and they walk away. One of the guys mentions Pygmalion as they're leaving and Marfia notes in delight, she doesn't know what that means, but... She's sure that it's filthy, (laughs) and the ladies leave the room. Yeah. It's only filthy when it's the opening of Misty Beethoven. Yes, that's that's accurate. The gentlemen seem excited about what's happening, and Spencer then goes on about evil whores being punished by the sword of God. Oh. And that's when we get our first indication, other than their glances before, that these guys have something planned out for Marfia. We then cut to Spencer and Flanagan naked on either side of a glass table with a candle in the middle. They have their hands joined and uh, call out to some sinister beings of horniness, including Hornius, Bitchius Maladelvius, Uh Sinfulus Fuckius, and Maladizone Bitchius Dickius. (laughs) Wow, that's like an evil lady with a big dick. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> That's scary. We then cut to the ladies together, and Marfia is slowly undressing Dorothy, noting she looks good. Dorothy notes that Marfia must be good at making love, and Marfia says Dorothy's probably pretty good herself, noting that how women are softer and more tender than men, noting that she's made love with a woman once a long time ago, but it left a great impression. So we see the women making out, and Dorothy slowly and tenderly undresses Marfia, with Dorothy sucking on Marfia's nipples for a bit. We move on to Marfia giving Dorothy simulated oral for a bit, and then the men come in and yell at Marfia, telling her she should be ashamed of herself, corrupting their legal wife. Yeah, that's not good. So this is the couple that was all married? Yes. Okay, but now they hate each other. I guess so. They've they've been overcome with the wishes of these dark, evil, horny ghosts oh, no. who want to punish sluts. Okay. They say she deserves exemplary punishment, and so the two men grab Marfia and carry her off. We cut to Rosalina laying around naked again, and then we cut to a club where Marfia is thrown on the floor as the men walk off. She walks around examining the environment until she accidentally kicks a hand on the floor, which startles her. 
Seems to be plastic or wooden. Yeah, it looks like a mannequin's hand. We slowly see people appear, but they're wearing the kooky masks that we saw at the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Marfi is terrified by this, uh, these otherwise naked people in rubber masks. So she goes to run to escape, but she's grabbed by the men and thrown to the ground. We then see the cast of the movie walk in, but they're chanting, Cuckoo Fate! Yeah. As they each have one of the letters of that drawn on their bodies below their chests. But they only have enough people for Cuckoo Fa. Yeah. Well, they they combine the A and the T on the last guy. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's right. That's a good point. Thank you. But uh, there's not an ending E. It does seem like there's an E, but maybe, maybe if you combine, maybe that's Spanish. I don't know. Yeah. It's a Spanish letter. Well, we'll let it go nonetheless. So, as one person picks up the artificial hand, Marfia is told to kiss the incorrupt hand of Saint Cucafate of Maguncia. It's here that we also see a prop skull on the ground, and Marfi is told to kiss the skull of Catherine the Great. Yes. Uh, Marfi is then told to chant Cuckoo Fate, and she indeed does. Spencer and Rosalina appear, and they're chanting simultaneously, explaining they are the secret society that act as a reaction to the evils of the time and the scourges of society. Spencer and another woman continue to explain, saying, In this festive season, a prostitute is eliminated. A disembodied voice repeatedly asks, Who did you tell? And the society in unison repeatedly answers, Cousin Beelzebub and Uncle Lucifer. Meanwhile, Marfia is just laying on the floor chanting, Cuckoo Fate. A man in a devil mask appears and dances around in a menacingly fabulous manner for a yeah. bit. Uh, it's um, it's Andre from Mary Mary. Yeah. <laughs> a- the Arranger. Yes, the Arranger. Yeah. We see the group all in masks again, and they're rubbing their hands up and down Marfia as they moan and growl. We then see Dorothy in a dress, breasts exposed, unsheathing a dagger and holding it above Marfia. Dorothy eventually plunges the dagger down and then erupts into laughter. We then cut back to Marfia, who's laying in bed. She's still alive. She's wearing her sequin top we've seen her in already, in a pair of thigh highs and nothing else. Mm -hmm. She takes a drink erotically from a glass bottle, tenderly licking the mouth of the bottle. We see some drops of water flowing down her chin, running in between her breasts and dripping down to her pubic hair. This is all occurring to some jazzy piano music. Mm-hmm. Marfia puts down the bottle and returns to looking at a porno magazine. We watch as Marfia starts to play with herself, running her fingers through her pubic hair as she caresses her nipples. She eventually walks to her glass door and notes that they're finally coming to get me. We then cut to Spencer and Marfia going down the road in a car. Spencer is talking about show business and nonsense terms Stephen thrower postulated that this these were perhaps like newspaper headlines or something that they were talking in okay. but again last like the last scene in a car it's all nonsense no yes yes it is nonsense it's um it's beautiful maybe As, it has nothing else to do with the film at all <laughs> it doesn't really uh so marfia starts to nap in the passenger seat 
And it's at that point that Spencer notices a hitchhiker, Rosalina, on the side of the road. Although I think she's given another name here. Spencer notes as he stops to pick her up that they're going to Timbuktu, and Rosalina is pleased with this, so she gets in the back seat. They ride down the road a bit more, and Spencer and Rosalina exchange flirty glances in the rearview mirror as Marfia continues to sleep. This, in fact, continues for a few minutes before Rosalina asks for Spencer to stop so she can pee. She also notes that if he follows her, he can play mommies and daddies with her. Hmm. Spencer stops and makes sure Marfia is sleeping and whispers to Rosalina to come on and be quiet. So they leave Marfia in the car and walk off. We then cut to exterior shots of what appears to be a weird spaceship. Although there's definitely doors there. Yes. Uh, Stephen Thrower notes that this was a club called uh, Koo Bar. That uh, was a it was a nightclub or discotheque designed to be a flying saucer, and it still exists today. Although, as Jeremy noted as we were watching the thing, uh, they put up rails so people couldn't fall off the side of yeah, it. Yeah, things used to be cooler. You used to be able to fall off the side of the UFO, but they right? had to baby-proof it for you idiots. <laughs> we cut back to Spencer and Rosalina walking into a field and making out. Uh, this shot is clearly taken from a car window as we see the side of the window in the shot. We cut to Rosalina in a hotel room crying. The narrator once again introduces us to Rosalina, now as the producer's ex-girlfriend. He says, who never overcame her wonderful interpretation in the scene of moms and dads with the lead of the film. Uh So I guess the producer got jealous of her great performance in the scene. Oh, yes. But we leave Rosalina alone and cut back to Marfia, who is asleep in the car. She wakes up. We then cut back to the spaceship and we see, coated in silver... Tony Skios and uh, Antonio Mayans as they menace the camera, uh, looking like they did at the beginning of the film in the alien scene. Mm -hmm. And indeed, as Marfia gets out of the car and calls out to Spencer repeatedly, the naked silver men approach her, ask her what she's doing out here. She collapses in fright, and so the men carry her off to the spaceship. We then see inside the ship, and an alien ceremony is taking place exactly as... as the one did in the beginning. Yeah, it was, uh, the aliens were real. Indeed, and they're there to impregnate with the galactic cock, as they say. The earthly pussy has unloaded. So Marfia is laid on the ground by the silver men again, and the mounting begins as before. We see the masked people watching, and then on screen, we see Finn as the audience claps, and we cut to black and get some more spacey jazz rock as the film ends. Wow. And that was Sex is Crazy. It is a lot of things that happened on screen, and quite a ride. Yeah. Uh, aliens are real. That's that's the key theme of the movie. And they can have 600 babies an hour. Exactly. So watch out. Protect your holes. Yeah, if. They could replace an entire town in just uh, a couple hours of uh, fucking. Yes. So if you get captured by silver men, don't forget your raincoat. Oh, wait. Uh, we're going to take a break, <laughs> and then we'll be back to give uh, 
some final thoughts on Sex is Crazy. Phones popped on my head. Oh no. Yeah, it's okay though. Oh, we're back. We are back to talk a little bit more about sex is crazy. So I want to start by kind of going into some of the themes of the film. I kind of talked a lot about the, I don't know, the kind of random notes that I had, but I, I wanted to go over a few more things now that we've kind of talked about it a bit more. Sure. Uh, in discussing the Stephen Thrower mentioned how the film is kind of designed to be alienating yeah. uh, both from a viewer standpoint and kind of in the sexual relations between characters um, there's a lot of chanting and nonsense talk in the film as we kind of discussed along the way but we've also got a lot of doubling doubling of actors who play multiple characters scenes replayed uh, multiple times with different emphases, a lot of use of mirrors, uh, even the couples themselves, there's two of them throughout the film. While Godard, uh, you know, again, noted as an influence here, self-consciously kind of criticizes the process of filmmaking, Jess is more focused on just making a film that's disorienting mm -hmm. to the audience. So you see Jess in the film, within a film, itself kind of a hall of mirrors effect um steven pointed out which is something i didn't think about that there's one shot where jess franco zooms in on his own reflection as he's holding the camera uh and intentionally puts it out of focus likely a deliberate fuck you to critics who <laughs> are constantly complaining about his use of zoom and uh lack of focus and various things but uh you know, in the film, the theme of alienation goes on to the point of actual aliens, sex aliens, who screw and reproduce in nine seconds in a way that kind of puts sex itself in an alienating manner in the sense that there's no focus on pleasure or desire. It's just this mechanical thing happening over and over again. The sex scenes themselves, as I kind of pointed out when we were talking about the kind of group sex scenes, they're absurdist and playful uh, despite that alienation but throughout the film there's a bunch of interchangeability swapping partners swapping roles swapping names and just the weirdness is played throughout the film in a way that's interesting because there's a lot of critique you could give Jess Franco's films as far as not being polished or um him having kind of a surreal take on things. But this film seems to be very intentional with the things that it's doing and the choices that are being made. 
So it's not so much like some of his films where you kind of get the idea that he took one take and wasn't going to take another take, so he just whatever happened ended up in the film. Right. Um, I mean, there's probably some of that in this film, but the weirdness of this film doesn't come from that as much as intentional decisions. And in that sense, this film is unlike anything else I've ever seen in some way. So... All of that is just to set up our normal thing because it's the time. raincoat review. <laughs> yes, it's time for the raincoat review. I did it. Were you recording that? Yeah. Okay. Good. You just you you just you preempted me. I know. Okay. All right, Jeremy. It's your over, turn. I've been very quiet over here. Oh uh, man! Stop being polite and start being real, Jeremy. Okay. This movie is fucking crazy sex is crazy and sex is crazy is crazy yeah it's uh it's definitely a very it's a very different franco film but it also has like everything you would see in a franco film yeah just uh really uh broken up and, and cracked apart uh and a very uh this way a very hazy dreamy way which you get a lot in his films but uh like you were saying in this one a lot of it feels more intentional right like uh there is a sense that every scene is disconnected from the scene that came before yeah as characters play different characters you're kind of looped in and out of what is a film and what is like what is being filmed and what is a uh, like quote unquote real Right, as right. far as like the reality of the film, and uh, Franco doesn't give you any easy answers on this, and um, I don't think he had any intention to. No, uh, especially with this one. Like in other ones, you can say the narrative is kind of murky or just sort of there to push along like a single idea he had, like Lulu's talking ass or something like that. Right. But uh, you mentioned Godard, and uh, I would think of uh, William S. Burroughs' cut-up technique. Okay. Where uh, uh, when you read his stuff, a lot of it you need to maybe double back to figure out what he's trying to say or to see if it's somehow connected to like the stuff you had just read before. Because um, a lot of it's like at random. Mm-hmm. And then, like, constructed uh, in a certain way. And this kind of has that. It's obviously a very experimental film, which makes it kind of hard to give it, like, a proper, like, a, what I would call, it, you know, like, a star rating. Okay. It, it's, it doesn't seem fair to say, like, well, I was confused by this, so it deserves less of a, like, a... Like I would with like a traditional like narrative film, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's certainly one of the more bizarre things we've covered on this. And uh, one of the stranger things I think I've, I've definitely not watched ever, but uh, recently. Right. <laughs> it's, one, it's, a, it's definitely in that category of... Uh, the category of like non-narrative experimental films uh 
the kind of stuff you would see held up as like an example of like artistic pretension. Right. Uh, so while it skewers that, it also is that. I can see that. Yeah. So it, it makes it uh, at times difficult to follow. But uh, say I was absorbed the entire time I was watching it, just trying to f- figure out what was going on and to see what strange thing might appear next or what new scenario might tumble out of Franco's head. Right. Uh, I don't feel comfortable giving it a, a rating. I'm going to say I liked it a lot. Okay. Uh, I would say if you're a fan of Franco, it's definitely worth checking out, but no going in that you're not going to be seeing like a, just a, a film about some aristocrat torturing somebody. <laughs> right. That's part of it. Uh, almost, but it's not what it's about. Right. It's about aliens and how they're real. Yes. That's the important part. <laughs> yeah. That's all you need to know. Franco revealed this a long time before the government finally yeah. acknowledged it. Yeah. He was one of the first like big truthers he about was, aliens. He was a visionary. Yeah. and uh, They're we, all silver. <laughs> they have bad they wigs. Are. And they all go to a discotheque spaceship. Yeah. Wonderful. Wish I could go there. <laughs> well, to me, Sex is Crazy is one of those examples of pure Jess Franco weirdness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think before I might have referred to Shining Sex as like pure, unadulterated Jess Franco. Yeah, and this one, I did think of Shining Sex when I was watching this. It has that similar kind of like, cut up like real loose loose narrative set up it does in some ways but i would say that shining sex is it's definitely even more if, structured yeah it, it's yeah. followable like it might not be the most uh very well put together narrative but like you can make sense of it much easier than you could this yes uh and it also does similar to this, have people painted in metallic paint. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, in this case, I think what we have here is Jess Franco taking his greater ambitions and melding them with what he could make that was commercially viable, which is, you know, a Jess Franco sex film. Mm -hmm. And so he is playing along with a lot of the experiments in the film industry, but, uh, you know, on his own terms. And in some ways, I think that it's him giving kind of a middle finger to the audience, um, but at the same time giving the audience what he thinks they want anyway. So it's kind of his balancing act between the commercial and the artistic. Mm-hmm. Um it's not my favorite Jess Franco film, but I will say that I was entertained throughout, and I think that that's the important part. So I am going to give it a rating. I'm going to give it three and a half stars. You're here. I think that it's uh, it's something that is an experience unlike any other experience. Yeah. And if you're looking for an experience unlike any other experience, you should go see it. Mm-hmm. Go to your local theater. Yeah, go to your theater and demand they play Sex is Crazy. Yes. 
show up at your local AMC theater and demand it. Perverted porno zones. Yes. Go to your local perverted porno zone. Demand it. Or go to your local family theater and demand it be a perverted porno zone. Yeah, make sure... Campaign to turn them into porno zones. That's the next... That's the next big big campaign from the Raincoat Institute. Yeah. We need more perverted porno zones in our country. They're trying to take them away, as yeah. I've been saying for years. All the strip clubs on 7th Street are shutting down. They're all gone. The COVID killed all the strippers. <laughs> <laughs> they got sick from touching all those dollar bills. Oh, boy. Yeah. They, well, they just put them in their mouth. Oh, not yeah. supposed to do that. Oh, boy. Well, <laughs> moving on, we have uh, three more weeks of Franco-February to look forward to, but for our Patreon uh, supporters, we have an episode to look forward to this Friday where we talk about Playboy TV's foursome once mm-hmm. again. Yes, we're diving uh, back in. Yes, and we uh, we get to see a lot of weird stuff happen, as usual. Yeah, psychic uh, omens. Oh yes, psychic omens <laughs> from a sexual psychic. <laughs> yeah, so you know that's that's keeping in line with the, the Franco theme in a way. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, so. if you uh, want to get involved in that, follow us on Patreon for just five dollars a month. You get two bonus episodes every month and early access to our normal episodes. Uh, mm. They're up there ad free, although I think our normal feeds ad free right now because no. people don't want to advertise with us. But if you want to advertise with us. Let us know. Yeah. Uh, it's not free. <laughs> yeah. You have to give us like a dollar? Uh, probably more than that, but we'll, we'll figure it out. If you've got a product you'd like to have pitched on the show, you just reach out and we'll we'll figure it out. It'll be like Shark Tank, except we can't invest in anything. Yeah. We'll just decide if we want to run the ads or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to promise the quality of any of the products or services we might potentially be advertising, but... <laughs> you've got one you think is uh i think we're the you know like your target audience is us or people that listen to us you know raincoat report at gmail.com or on twitter and instagram yes and uh you know if you're not trying to advertise with us you can reach out to us in those places and if you want to help us out without spending any money rate review subscribe to our podcast tell other people about it Let's grow that raincoat army. Yeah. And uh, in the meantime, if you're climbing aboard the discotech spaceship with all of the nine-second breeding aliens, uh, don't forget your raincoat. Raincoat.